Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I'm always up for a debut short story collection, especially one as tricksy, slippery and kinky as Leon Craig's Parallel Hells. Leon is a North London writer with a globalised imagination. She's been published all over the place, but she's also a member of the Futures in the Making, the Queer Writers Collective. And my oh my, that perspective is evident in these stories. Parallel Hells transports us to the pogroms in Eastern Europe, to a Viking settlement, to BDSM dungeons and the mundane here and now of contemporary urban life, but all with the same eye for the outsider and an awareness of the uncanny narrative potential of queer experience. Whew, that, that was quite the paragraph. It kind of sounds like I'm writing the blurb for the back of the book. I, I won't go any further into the plots themselves. As you'll hear in the conversation, both Leon and I together struggle to really pin down the substance of these tales. It's like trying to grab water in your fist. That's one of the things we talk about, that lure of ambiguity. We also discuss more practical things like Jewish folklore, the healthy side of sadomasochism, why it's impossible to be happy in your 20s, and whether queer horror is a reductive term. Oh, and I spend a good five minutes kicking the teeth out of what is probably one of your favourite novels. Don't take it personally. So, off we go to an underground club in an unspecified city where the crack of the whip is the least of your troubles. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Leon, and a huge welcome to Talking Scared. How are things? Oh, thank you so much for having me on Talking Scared, Neil. Um, Things are very good. I'm dialing in from Berlin, where the weather is grey, grey and more grey, but I have some good books to keep me company. What's taking you to Berlin? you're, You're my first German correspondent. I'm not German, but I do live here now, and I... Moved in late 2020 for romantic reasons and also because it was the last possible date before the Brexit cutoff. And it's it's a gorgeous city, but very strange at the moment because all the things that people that usually draw people here are closed. So it's sort of just me and lots of parks and lots of restless ghosts. <laughs> yeah, I've never been to Berlin. I always imagine the entire thing is like a really sleek white art installation that's how it i picture the entire city in my mind uh well you may be pleasantly surprised the area that i'm in is a lot of 19th and early 20th century buildings quite run down and like really vibrant turkish and vietnamese communities so Mm -hmm. the falafel and the noodles are incredible um but yeah not not especially like the buildings are not especially sleek or polished. Okay, I, I prefer it that way. I mean, you move there for romance. I moved to a tiny haunted village in the north of England for romance, and and I married her, so I'm I'm stuck here. So at <laughs> least at least you got to go to exotic climes, or at least cultured climes. And well, speaking of culture, look at that for a segue. It's like I do this for a living. Um, <laughs> this week sees the release of your debut collection of short fiction, Parallel Hells. And it's been on my radar for a while because it, it garnered quite a bit of industry buzz here in the UK. And when I first read about it late last year, I was I was intrigued. Now, I've now read it, and it's this, this collection of dizzying, quite slippery stories. And as much as I've enjoyed it, I found it uniquely difficult to write coherent questions about. So this could be an interesting interview. <laughs> um, sometimes the questions kind of write themselves, but but these stories have, have made that more difficult. So I think the best thing, if it's okay with you, is to start off by just asking you to give us a general introduction to this collection. Kind of where does Parallel Hells come from? And, and I suppose, what are you trying to do with it, if that's a fair question? I can definitely see the difficulties of coming up with questions about it. And... To try and summarise, if indeed I can summarise my own work, I think a lot lot of the questions I'm trying to answer kind of cohere around 
the idea of how difficult it is to really know what other people are going through and also to express to the people around you what's sort of going on in your own darkest heart. Um, a friend recently read the collection and said that the thing that she was startled by was how often the motif of masks repeats itself um, with a kind of like literal disguise like Aster in Hags or more abstr- like abstract forms of emotional disguise. Yeah, I can't say that it occurs, but that is an interesting one, though. Very few people are necessarily who they seem to be. That is true. There's always themes that I miss when I do this with collections. I always get really smug thinking I've nailed the salient themes, and it always proves wrong. So is that what, what the title is about? When you say that everyone is, is living their own, you know, they have their own dark heart and are going through their own things, is that where the title comes from, Parallel Hells? This idea of everyone is living a parallel hell of their own yes that's exactly it i think i wanted to have a title that created a sense of proximity i mean a lot of the stories are about people living in cities like very nearby each other kind of cheek by jowl and intimacy but also a sense of of real separation and alienation and i think I'm also very fascinated with different kind of cultural representations of hell and i'm you know, coming at this in some ways from an outsider's perspective because you know, hell has all of these associations with Abrahamic religion. But it's, it's, it's a theme that I just keep returning back to, this sort of descent into the underworld and then towards the end possibly kind of emerging from it. So I know I said to you only moments ago off air, right, that I set this show up to to dispense with boring questions like, why do you write horror? I'm never going to massively undermine that point because there are lots of people of, of kind of your generation writing stories about, you know, very subjective struggles and torments and experiences there are lots of people doing that particularly in these urban settings i'm thinking of something like sally rooney you know um but so many writers go to the the cynicism of the quotidian i suppose or they go to you know very mundane almost proto-modernist stuff wow that's a lot of jargon whereas you've gone towards the speculative to confront that idea why i mean it's a very broad question but but what what attracts you to the odd and the uncanny and the supernatural i i think it's largely just being quite an odd duck (laughs) and also the amount of folklore that i absorbed growing up i think has a kind of permanent impact on the paths that my imagination takes and also, I think a really another really big part of it is queerness and some of the difficulty of rendering my experiences legible to other people who haven't necessarily had them. Because you know, <laughs> sometimes you do find yourself tailoring a story from your own life to someone, and it's not unlike you know trying to explain that you went to a house that with multiple different time strands in it like the 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 kind of incomprehension that you occasionally get faced with i mean that's not to slate everyone but more that like there's a certain amount of bridging the gap and i think that that bridging can sometimes inspire unexpected creativity well see that's very interesting you you've mentioned kind of like the elephant in the room, so to speak, you know, that this has been considered a a collection of queer stories, particularly kind of queer horror stories. From what I've gathered, you just said there that, that, that horror, or at least the speculative and the uncanny, is a great way to, I don't know, manifest that experience. Is that because, and I suppose if this is true, this is an awful fact, but is that because, in your eyes, the world still sees queerness is in some way gothic or uncanny i mean i wouldn't go as far as to say that everyone necessarily sees it that way but i think if enough people make you feel that way over 
the course of your formative years, then perhaps you do start to identify more with, you know, the thing at the bottom of the well or the uncanny noise coming from the attic than you do with the family around the dinner table, or at least start to wonder what's in the attic. Yeah. Okay. So, right. I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves, and and I've got a lot of questions about the the, the queer narratives. Let's let's go back um, before I derail myself entirely to this idea about subjective hells. The parallel hell is the title. So if we are confronting the fact that everyone has their own hell, or at least the potential for their own hell, then that necessitates a recognition of individual experience and identity. Would you agree so far? Yes. Um, if the question is the, you know, do are people sub- subjective realities real to them? and is the is the collection partly an exploration of that? I think that's I think that's a kind of helpful way of looking at it, particularly with stories like raw pork and opium, where reality kind of bifurcates and you're kind of deliberately left uncertain. You know whose perspective you're really looking out of and what happened and who gets to tell the story of what happened. Um, that like that's probably the, a prime example of those perspectives being kind of thrown into contrast or sometimes complementing each other. Well, raw pork and opium is a particularly strange story that I, I do want to unpick with you, but that's only half what I'm getting at. What I was going to say is that if we do have this recognition of individuality, then that's something that you seem to deal with quite explicitly in this collection because you write from all kinds of perspectives. You write across geographies and histories and across ethnicities and across subcultures. I mean, there's a story in this told from the perspective of a Viking's wife, another from a a sort of a a Jewish golem. Um, And then there are the more, as I say, you know, quotidian urbanites. But it does go all over the map to corral these, these various hells. And just like I asked you, you know, why you kind of tend towards the, the, the speculative, do you equally feel compelled to stretch your imagination in all those other ways? Ah, now I see what you were getting at. So I think I really enjoy trying to write in a historical mode as well, because it really forces me to pay attention to the material culture and the kind of and like the attitudes of the time and sort of unpick some of the assumptions that I might be working with otherwise in something that was upset in a more contempt like in a more contemporary setting um but I'm also still handling those sort of same raw emotions and seeing how they play out differently and with like with regard to writing across the perspective of the non like the non-human um one of the other things is that you know not all of the narrators in the collection are human beings and I suppose I'm also playing some games with ideas about like who gets to be human and how much humanity do they get to show and you know can, can I make myself feel sympathetic for a set of furniture and if so why right I was going to finish with the furniture but let's deal with it now. That story, it's called Pretty Rooms, and I, I actually tweeted the first page of it. it. It's a deceptively simple story. It's monologue almost, you know, like told from the POV of furniture as they witness this life passing and ending around them. It's kind of like a really sad, lonely version of Toy Story. <laughs> but... <laughs> But few stories evoke that level of forlorn sadness. I mean, another weird comparison, but it made me feel the exact, until now, unique melancholy as Ray Bradbury's The Foghorn. I don't, I don't know if you've read that story or not. I have now have it open in a tab after you suggested that there might be some similarity between them. So I'm really looking forward to seeing where, like, what he like what he's done with it, because... It's always really fascinating watching someone who's writing you really rates um, addressing like some like themes that you have in common in their own particular style. 
basically they both made me feel this this kind of echoing sadness that isn't like oh the dog died it's this kind of low-key sadness i mean i won't spoil it for you but the foghorn is brilliant bears no relation to your story and theme but in the effect it has um but yeah pretty rooms about this furniture made me feel the same way yet it seems to sit oddly with the other stories in this collection it's kind of slow and it's dialogue free largely and it's on an almost entirely concept rather than action whereas all your other stories are full of life and dialogue and chaos why you know does it sit oddly to you in the collection or you know what did you have any, any doubts about including it what what do you think about all of that so to me it feels like quite a natural inclusion though I can see why it is perhaps jarring compared to some of the other ones on other levels the reason why I feel like it makes sense to include that one is firstly there is this dichotomy of helplessness and also power in the way that the furniture can't you know it's there it's like it's a collection of inanimate objects they can't stop their owners doing anything to them and they can't stop themselves like being split up or moved around but at the same time by dint of having some perspective on their owners lives they also perhaps possess a superiority to them because you know the furniture is still there when the owners are dead and i think that perspective of both like helplessness but also perspective is something that echoes in the other stories for instance the bequest where the book both doesn't have a body but also can see what Miri can't see about her own life and one of the other things that I think is ties pretty rooms into the collection um is like is the inhumanity of the narrator because in Unfinished and Unformed, I mean, the golem speaks in a way that we might find more recognisable, but they aren't, you know, they're made, like, they're made of mud and ashes. They're not, they're not made of flesh. I found Pretty Rooms, weirdly, the scariest story in the collection as well, uh, because it's about mortality, or or at least it really drives home the issue of mortality, because this furniture just they 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 just stand by and watch people flicker in and out of existence, and yeah, that that to me was was really frightening. <laughs> just that my wardrobe will outlive me. It's it's such a strange thought, but I mean. One does have it like, you know, throwing a can into a bin. It's like, you know, this, unless this gets recycled, like this can is going to be here when I'm under earth. Yeah, that, that is a mad thought. I think there's also an um, older Japanese folkloric tradition that some furniture over a hundred years old gains a soul. And it's something that I've always found very comforting as an idea. Well, and there we go back to the kind of the Toy Story analogy, which may be quite insulting to your literary short story, but I think Toy Story Three is one of the most profound meditations on 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 the the, the true value of possessions ever made. So I stand by it. <laughs> I mean, I think like most other people who were kids in the nineties, that scene with the little boy who turns his toys into these sort of freakish creations had like a very formative effect on me so i'm thrilled by that comparison well oh and the, the last thing i'll say before we move on the other thing it made me realize when you said about you know they, they're separated these pieces of furniture against their will it, it made me think about something that my, my wife's gonna kill me now for saying this on air and she does listen sorry georgia <laughs> we, we were once me, me and my wife were once walking around I, I we were going shopping for christmas decorations she's She's cringing now, having heard me even say that. We were shopping for Christmas decorations, and I picked up this bauble that had like it was like I don't know, had a bear or something like that, polar bear. And we walked off, and we decided we didn't want it. And I just put it down somewhere, 
and she made me take it back and put it back with the other ones that it had been with the rest of its own kin um so that it wouldn't be on its own and i laughed at her and i mocked her for this entirely and since then i've become very 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 observant of putting things back with their um that th- their other other objects like them it's like i've invested everything i see now with a little bit of soul i really love that I think that's a very human response. I mean, you know, at least when I was young, I think, like, as in, like, a very small child, I remember sort of genuinely believing that my toys had feelings. And then a couple of years after, looking at them perplexed and wondering why, like, where that kind of animation had gone. And, you know, even, like, even as an adult, it's very easy to like impute a personality and a soul to something and maybe we'd be better off for doing that more often well it, it might help solve the uh, the mass consumerism crisis if nothing else um right so moving on you, we've already mentioned you've mentioned the dibuk in the bequest which for those who don't know is a a particular kind of jewish demon as far as i'm aware um we've mentioned the golem so yeah there is a, a, a substantial amount of jewish experience, history, and folklore in parallel hells. And I believe that you're Jewish yourself, is that right? Yes. I mean, I don't think by anyone's standards I'd be a particularly good Jew, but it's definitely, like, I am culturally and and ethnically Jewish and grew up in North London, which is a very Jewish area. So it's something that, like, I feel a strong, like, a strong connection mm-hmm. to and it was kind of inevitably going to present itself in my work and it does to great effect so the story the bequest as we say you know it's about a dibuk but it's also haunted by the long shadow of the holocaust yet there is very little place for depictions of anti-semitism in the collection or certainly if, if they're there they're very subtle um and that seems anti-Semitism seems the obvious way to go if you're writing dark stories or horror stories from and about the Jewish experience. Did you intentionally shy away from that? Were you attempting a different framing of of Jewish culture? I am not entirely sure that I would agree that I was shying away from it. I mean, in Unfinished and Unformed, uh, towards the end, the hut is literally broken into by a Cossack. Um, and <clears throat> part of the the woman's relationship with her neighbours is because she needs them to warn her if there's going to be a pogrom or some other forms of like potential anti-Semitic violence. So it's something that they all live in the shadow of, but they're trying to make their lives under that shadow, you know, in the woman's case, you know, make like making her golems and making her like her plum brandy and just, you know, waiting for her husband to come back. And then in the bequest, it's something I think also that the characters are very aware of and you have moments where the narrator Miri is sort of preparing herself for other people's prejudices but they're not necessarily going to be directly stated to her it's just that she will know that they're there so it's that it's that again you're kind of living under the shadow of something and you don't know when the shadow will pass over you yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see that now. To be, I'll be very honest. One of my questions was going to be, when was the, the the Golem story set? Because I hadn't quite nailed down that it was, you know, Cossacks and and that part of the world. So that may explain the ignorance of my question. Um, but I still think that you do this interesting thing of writing about all manner of cultures and subcultures as i said before this this whole across the map approach you take and you you never seem to take the easy approach of just writing about the trauma of being part of a maligned culture the 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 the, the horror and the darkness always seems to come from some deeper more inner place than 
external prejudice against you know queer people or jewish people or you know you you never seem to go for that easy thing of oh isn't the world awful in that way oh that's um that's really flattering and if that's come across then i'm really happy about it um i think the reason for that framing beyond perhaps just like never doing things the straightforward way because of having a slightly kind of spidery brain um is that in my like in my own experience yeah you might be contending with people's dislike for you or prejudice towards you um or prejudice towards your partner but you're also dealing with a huge number of other things at the same time and they're going to be quite temporally diffuse for instance you might have bad feelings about yourself that you've partly internalized because of other people or you might have like bad feelings because you feel you know you feel physically ill or or are simply depressive because you're depressive and I think those sort of those those might connect with it, like external experiences of oppression, but I feel like if I was only writing about external experiences of oppression, I'd perhaps be denying my character's interiority. Yeah, and it's the interiority that really seems to be the location of the horror because so many of your characters are deeply unhappy, aren't they? That you know, in in a weirdly uplifting, funny, genuinely funny collection. Your characters are very unhappy people on the whole. Yes, they they most certainly are. And I think that I it's partly because I wrote the collection over a period of seven years from, and for many of those years, like I was very, very depressed and anxious. And I think that it was perhaps difficult to imagine points of view where that wasn't a feature, you know, like medieval Iceland sure 18th century polish lithuania sure happy narrator not so much (laughs) Uh, but also i think that depression and dissatisfaction can sometimes deliver a degree of like observational skill that isn't always very helpful to your mood but can be a gift if you're trying to like write all the details of a world even if it's a world that you don't necessarily like very much that's interesting, yeah. I'm someone who spent, I mean, I'm what, I'm 38 now, uh, and my 30s have been great, but my 20s were just, in retrospect, the bleakest time. Even the even the happy memories I have of my 20s, I have been tinged kind of like ice blue because of the coldness and bleakness of that decade. And I just think, I, gen- I genuinely do believe that low-level depression is a state of being now for somebody in the in the their twenties. I think it's impossible to not be, and it feels like the world now has been set up in such a way that it's an inescapable trap to to not be depressed. And the phrase you use, depressed and dissatisfied. How how on earth in your twenties these days can you possibly be satisfied with the life you've got when when things are being set up to tell you what about the life you should have? I'm sorry that you've also had that experience and yeah, my heart goes out to you because it really sucks. Um, I think (laughs) I can only answer for myself in terms of like nearing the end of my twenties and how you might feel satisfied, which is making a really like bizarre and left field change and then going, okay, well I've done this now. Like I've moved country during a pandemic. I guess like, I guess I have to like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had to do it. I mean, what, what changed my life, literally changed it. You know, people talk about finding themselves. I used to roll my eyes so hard when people used the phrase find themselves. I just didn't think, oh, come on. And then I basically went backpacking around America for a year with just literally like a tiny knapsack of clothes. And not, I was like Tom Sawyer, you know, and I discovered what made me happy. But until then, life was just grim. I, I think I said on this show before that, when I think of my 20s, I, th- I seem to have spent the entire decade walking through a ugly post-industrial landscape hungover in the drizzle. <laughs> yeah. That is quite a visual. 
Um, I mean, I had a good time. You know, I still had good nights out and stuff. And I had a good time at uni. But yeah, I just think that urban life for for people in that decade was just almost impossible to navigate without depression, dissatisfaction. And this collection really evokes that in, in a way that because of my tendencies towards the macabre, I, I, I just think these off-kilter witchy tales that you tell kind of get to the heart of that dislocated experience i mean if like if i've achieved that then i've definitely managed to kind of get something across i mean i remember at one point being so depressed that like i think a pot plant in my room had a lot of like small flies living in it and i was in a kind of like quite impressionable and like sleep deprived stage and was like what if they're coming from me you know what like what if it says something about me that I'm attracting flies because of how disgusting I am and obviously I just needed to throw the pot plant in the bin but I think it's that moment where <clears throat> your kind of self-perception shifts into the surreal and in my case like slightly deranged that you get that blending of contemporary realism and sort of macabre horror that's like the ultimate self-objection. Chris Dave would have a field day with that. Yeah, that that's um, that's quite something. I think a little bit of that mindset made its way into Lipless Grin, the story about the corpse bride. Yes, um, just like what? Yeah, what? Like what if you were dead and no and no one except one person noticed? Right. So, sorry. Yeah, we'll get back to, we'll get back to the stories. You're quite right. That was a, a weird kind of psycho called us up we went down there but um yeah it was grim they story about this corpse brand and her father sees her literally rotting in front of him and no one else seems to notice is that what the story is about is it that she that is happening but only he can recognize it because i interpreted it as she had disappointed him and was therefore corroding in front of his eyes and that it was all about his perspective his kind of almost misogynistic perspective on his expectations of his daughter that weren't fulfilled. I think I wrote it so that either of those is correct. So you can read it as a really like the way that you the way you're doing, and that I think the groundwork for that has been laid so that it's his disgust at her like adulthood and sort of burgeoning independence and and becoming a woman and this is a pretty profound and creepy disappointment to him um but i think layered in there is also the possibility that there is something genuinely very wrong with her and that no like it doesn't suit anyone else to notice right okay okay i mean that's the creepier one that's the way creepier idea yeah, I might I might switch my allegiance to that idea instead. And that actually that 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 stands for a whole approach with these stories because most of these stories end with a question. You know, most people's short fiction begins with a question. That's how you come up with an idea. You you think of a question and then you you answer it in an interesting way. Your stories end with a question more often than not. And and I finished several of them with no idea whether my interpretation of what I just read was correct or not. Is that something that you're happy with or is is there a closure that, that you're, you've intended and I'm missing? I mean, I think you're an incredibly astute reader, uh, probably better than I deserve. And um, I, I think that is the desired effect. At one point, the collection was actually titled Spiteful Tales because... While writing it, I got more and more enamoured of the idea that the writer has this role of as a sort of like ven like potentially vengeful god over their characters, and can you know if like if they choose to you know do a variety of extremely unkind things to the characters and and extensively also to the reader if the reader cares about them this was during my i should probably add a side note that this was during my phase of being really into hanya yunagihara's a little <laughs> life and i actually closed that book and went hanya you should have bought me dinner first um because i felt like i'd been like in some like intense psychological 
relationship with her where she always had the upper hand like by the end of reading that book and I was really fascinated with that and I was like I wonder if I can get away with that and a sort of small scale for my own concerns and towards the end of the writing of that book I was like maybe I could be a little less unkind to character and reader. Well you know when near as unkind as Anya Yanagihara I mean right let's go on as you said sidebar Let, let's just pursue that sidebar a little bit because I can't turn down the chance to have this conversation are you a fan of A Little Life? I really enjoyed it I wonder if my reasons for enjoying it are good reasons so I think that um I was really I was really fascinated by watching her torture her characters and making me identify with them and there was a kind of very masochistic enjoyment of like oh she's going to do this terrible thing to Jude now and I'm going to suffer with him and that kind of degree of control over my experience as a reader was very enticing okay Okay, that that is a that is a very nice agile answer that you've given there. Um, I have no such subtlety. I don't understand. So for for the for the listeners' benefit, if you've somehow not heard of Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life, it's this seven hundred page monolith, a kind of like a buildings roman story about these four college friends who four men who graduate from the same kind of New England school and they go into their, 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 their young adulthood and it's just unremitting torment, isn't it? And I I read it. I read it and obviously I read a lot of horror so I'm used to unremitting torment, you know? And I was just gobsmacked by it and not in a good way. And I've never understood why people don't find it utterly laughable i know that's really offensive because it could be someone's favorite book and i'm sorry i want I, I i like it when people like things so i'm not trying to tell anyone they're wrong but i find it laugh out loud funny at just how to me ridiculous the levels of unhappiness are i mean it's also a book which and i'm not trying to get on a kind of misandrous soapbox but it's it is a book that seems to imply that given the chance any man will abuse a child. I, I just, I've just never grasped why, um, why it's that has the kudos and 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 success it does. It, it left me astounded. I think it exists in its own peculiar moral universe where people's priorities are quite different to how I hope they are in real life in the same way that like when you read Dessard everyone has some extremely like skewed priorities and like you know like either you're the knife or the lamb and pretty much everyone is the knife and I think when you when you look at it like that where you're like okay everyone in this universe is is subtly different then it becomes enjoyable I mean I think I'm allowed to give spoilers at this point. It has been out for yeah. a while. Um, you know, in like when the car crash happened, I was both like really torn because I was like, "Oh, I'm so sad! Like this has happened to Jude." And I also was just laughing because I was like, "Okay, this, this is this is absurd." I mean, like, what is she going to do? To <laughs> yeah, next? Exactly. Yeah, I think if it, if it was a 300 page novel, you'd be like, "Okay, you can sustain that level of atrocity for." for so long but at more than double that you're just like oh my god what's going to happen next i kind of I, I, I was expecting aliens to land having him to be abducted because it's the only thing left that could sexually abuse him you know like i just i, I yeah I, I found it <laughs> staggering really um I, I believe her new one um uh, is it to paradise I, I believe that's phenomenal um, and people who hated a little life like me are also saying it's phenomenal so I've got whole, and I will, I'll give it a go because benefit of the doubt. But, but wow, listeners, email in. Let me know what you think of a little life. I'd be interested. But, but back to your stuff. Um, what was I saying before I interrupted you with with other things? So right, we're talking about this kind of this the fact that these que- these stories are so ambiguous and that they end with questions. 
And and what I'd say is they also begin that way because so many of these stories kind of plunge the reader into this, you know, this narrative world with scant handholding. We're just we're asked to sort out the historical and geographical context for ourselves. So an example is the question, the story you mentioned earlier, raw pork and opium, which transports us to this decaying mansion. And I was like, is it in London? Is it somewhere in Eurasia? Um, and and it, it at first it feels like an historical piece. And then these modern references creep in and locate us in the present. And do you aim for that disorientation? Uh, yeah, I think that disorientation can be a really valuable way of getting the reader's attention in the same way that perhaps like making them laugh or slightly scandalizing them can be so with raw pork and opium i hope that the strangeness of the two christmases immediately makes the reader want to continue because you know, you start tracing those parallelisms throughout the stories through the sort of bifurcated house and the bifurcated reality. And it so it's hopefully like grabbing the reader's attention in the same way that you like, for instance, when browsing the internet, some banners have mistakes in them deliberately because it kind of annoys you and makes you look at it again. So maybe it's a kind of banner ad mentality, but hopefully also doing something a bit more related to the form of the story as well. It's the closest thing to a haunted house story in the collection. Would you agree? Yes, I. Th- I think if, like, if I mean, I probably think my operating definition of a haunted house story is about the house rather than the people, and this, yeah, the and the house has an animating intelligence of its own. Yeah, but I mean, if you this this is every week without fail, I manage to find some way to crowbar a reference to Shirley Jackson, the haunting of Hill House, into a conversation, um, and this week will be no different. But if you read something like the haunting of Hill House or King's The Shining, they are probably the two most quintessential contemporary haunted house stories, and they are both stories in which it is the person who is haunted, not the house, or even more perhaps it's the person who is haunting the house mm, yes and i think in this one the um the characters are definitely arriving at the house with a lot of the issues and desires that they go on to explore in the story kind of already like already within them and they within their friendship group but I suppose I conceive of the house as something that when it meets those susceptible individuals, it's it it makes those kinds of manifestations possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that works for me. That's a haunted house for me. But I, I do take your point. Th- that story actually read to me like a kind of Russian philosophical novel in microcosm. It had strong Bulgakov vibes, you know, or it's like the or, or like Gogol if you wanted to discuss gender identity. Um, it, it had that kind of wacky, off-kilter Russian vibe, which which I like. That's one of the reasons that I kept thinking, is this set somewhere in, in the Ukraine or Kazakhstan or somewhere? Because <laughs> it had that feel. Um, I do really love the Master and Margarita and <laughs> things like the Overcoat. So, but I think they perhaps have crept in there. Um, I think I think it all comes back to that laughter you sometimes get in in Russian work where it's the kind of it's the laughter of the void and it's both forgiving and completely searing and with the characters in raw pork and opium it's not that they're entirely contemptible people who just deserve to be ridiculed but also you, you i think you do see a lot like a lot of their frailties and sometimes their sometimes their frailties are, are silly yeah okay i'll take that yeah silliness it's not a word that occurred to me but yeah um one word though that did stand out in your previous answer you you, you mentioned the word transgress you know would would this story 
um, be transgressive? Would you be transgressing with it? And I suppose that brings us, in a way, back around to this this thing about queer horror, this word, this phrase that is splashed all over the blurbs for this book. And this may be a stupid question. I, I would not be surprised if it was, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway. There are stories in Parallel Hells that feature, you know, BDSM and kink of many kinds. There's also many that feature really normative same-sex relationships, relationships that are torturous purely because the partners are young, not, it seems to me, because they are queer. So I'm interested in the, in the designation queer horror or queer fiction generally. Do you consider queerness a governing theme of this book? Or do you think that any horror or fiction written by a queer writer inevitably ends up framed as such? I think if I were writing a horror solely about cis straight people it would probably come across as very uncanny because there'd be certain assumptions that I was making that wouldn't quite sit right and I'd probably be tempted to have some fun with it. So answering only for myself, it would probably still be queer horror. Um, but also I think wanting to, at the same time as hopefully tell an engaging story and explore kind of darker themes along the way kind of take a look at various different kinds of queer relationship whether the horror is of external or internal in some I suppose it, I suppose it's almost I suppose it's almost an excuse so for instance like with the bequest the you know the big the big ticket item is the dibbuk but at the same time the thing that the Dibbuk is saving her from is this relationship in which the um, Miri is ignored and not valued. And I think the the Dibbuk attaches to her because of who she is. Um, but look, at, but looking at that kind of dysfunctional relationship was one of the pleasures of writing the story. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I only ask because I, I wonder if it ever feels like a reductive phrase queer horror because we've discussed a lot of things today many other themes in in the horror and in other parts of this collection but that that queer terminology that seems to be the one that at least in marketing terms trumps them all i i, I just i mean it's I, I just wonder whether it's something that you feel you know reduces your work to a, a, a singular theme when when the work is much richer than that i mean i'm like i'm flattered by the kind of additional things that you're pulling out of the work beyond the kind of queerness and the horror elements i mean i think i'm quite sanguine about these kinds of labels because i've spent so much time looking for other works of queer mm -hmm. fiction or oh, you know, like horror and weird writing that I might enjoy that's sort of addressing themes that is are interested in me. So if it's if it's a data point that it like directs someone who would enjoy it towards it, then I guess bring the labels on. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's just an interesting one because I think so many people are, are so invested in exploding horror and getting away from the term horror. And it comes up again and again on this show, almost every week, these issues of genre as marketing tools rather than literary tools you know um i just find it i wondered whether as you get more into the nuclei of the of the subgenres whether you whether that becomes a trap just as much as as the broader term horror seems to feel like a trap for a lot of more mainstream writers just just my general musing really but whilst we're on the topic sadomasochism features in several of these stories yet it it rarely if ever actually i'm trying to think of a single example it it never seems to play a part in the horror of the scenario and just like i said it would have been easy to go for anti-semitism as the as the, the kind of the you know the, the horror linchpin in some stories i imagine it would have been 
equally easy to go like the full Clive Barker route <laughs> and make BDSM a real scene of horror and kind of sensual sexual depravity. But you insist on this much lighter, almost comic touch. I mean, probably the most wholesome relationship in the entire collection is, is in the story Hags between two women who are immersed in the world of King. Yeah, I think that is actually the most healthy relationship in the book. And I think that I partly wrote it that way as a riposte to a certain strain of feminism that I don't, that does not sit very well with me, which is sort of, it seems to me to be at its core quite anti-autonomy. So like, and like anti-kink, anti-trans rights, like anti-sex workers' rights, and in some cases almost of anti-sex. And I think having this backdrop of the of a kink world in London where the characters can move through it more or less frictionlessly, um, though carrying their own kind of personal hopes and fears um is a way of partly reflecting reality that this world does exist and is not the sort of terrifying barker style hellscape that someone might assume and also it's a kind of very helpful setting in which to explore questions about power and agency without sadomasochism itself necessarily playing the like the role of the problem in those exactly that because the the physical practice is never problematic but there are all kinds of emotional power plays that feel much more sinister or harmful so you've got you've mentioned a few times mary and lucy and the bequest this relationship this toxic relationship or livia and annie in the story stay a while which which brings up um, issues of consent and things like that. It, it feels like the the play of 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 BDSM feel it, it is kind of a, a weird antidote to the 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 actual real nastiness in the inner lives of these people. Exactly. I mean, like Livia and Annie's relationship. The problem isn't that it's kinky. They've got plenty of problems when they're together. Like both that they're very young, very unhappy, and that they don't understand each other very well, and that Annie is thrust into these situations that are kind of inherently quite discriminatory towards her, and then is sort of at a loss of how to respond and doesn't always respond well. And the, the kink is a place where this is expressed because it's part of their relationship, but I think that those char- those characters would sadly be very ill matched, whatever they were doing in bed with each other. Yeah, yeah, and and that's as I say why that's why the, the the two characters I've forgotten the name, sorry, but the couple in Hags are so so weirdly sweet because whilst they're sitting on thrones in kind of sex dungeons, they're also having these really kind of small mundane conversations about their their lives, and they and they live together at the end that the main character goes around and sees them in their home and they've got this much more suburban life at the same time and it all feels weirdly wholesome. Um, and, and and the entire story, actually, of Hags feels weirdly sweet. And I think we'll finish by talking about that because it's easily my favourite story in the collection. Pretty Rooms broke my heart um, and I'll remember it forevermore, but Hags is just pure fun. It, it has the fullest world building. It ha- it's ha- this idea of a woman who is more than a woman. She's kind of living through history, feeding on people's sexual shame. That sounds horrible. That sounds like a Stephen King story. You know, that sounds like an 80s paperback um, kind of piece of trash. But it's actually quite the opposite. It It's a really life-affirming and weirdly sweet tale. Can you talk us through where it comes from? What inspired Hags? It's a good place to end the conversation. So... Hags was one of the most enjoyable writing experiences I've ever had because sometimes I would just sit down and my hands would move and 
it would come out. I mean, obviously I still had to edit it, but you know, some like with writing, some days it's like getting blood out of a stone. And this was completely the opposite. I just sort of arrived fully formed. And I think the core idea that Asta grew out of, because Asta, although people perceive like pretty much everyone in the story perceives Asta to be a woman they're a demon and they don't really have a gender like in the way that humans do even though it's something that's useful for them when they're disguising themselves as such and being kind of being kind of indeterminate as a method as a method of survival in what way you mean just kind of like going sleep slipping between the cracks so that no one can notice them Yes, so it's sort of it's convenient for them to have this kind of high femme presentation and exist in the kind of lesbian kink world at that particular point in time, but they aren't necessarily more attached to it ah. than they were to living as a Russian nobleman. So they can they can adapt through the kind of social and sexual mores of the time by having an indeterminate gender and sexual identity of their own yeah exactly um, i think it's almost in some ways a kind of fantasy of perfect mm-hmm. freedom and then imagining what the price of that might mm-hmm. be yeah one, one of my favorite themes in fiction is the idea of someone who's lived through the ages you know you get the, the myth of the comte de germain and stuff like that or keanu reeves um and and i, and I, I do love that but this story ends in a a really sweet way where it all comes down to whether or not Astra is able to kind of ad- admit who they are to, to their friends. And it's a weirdly human conclusion that that could be about any form of identity, couldn't it? But, it, but it's about something that just happens to be quite extreme and otherworldly. Yes. I mean, I think the kind of inbuilt joke is that they're all, like taking part in this subculture together and the friends are a kind of butch cis lesbian and a femme trans woman so both of them have had their own particular like journeys of living uh, like towards living authentically as themselves and then us just like oh yeah i'm just i'm just here i'm i'm definitely a human i promise <laughs> Yeah, it is. I say it's my favourite story in the collection. I'm very aware this week that we we have kind of tiptoed around the substance of the stories, and and I don't want the the, the listeners to, to 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 feel shortchanged. Just trust me when I say, listeners, these, these are not stories that can be boiled down to easy explication on a podcast. This is why I said at the start I found it quite difficult to. To, to, to write questions in advance for this um but we, we've said words that should have piqued people's attention we've said demon enough times we've said golem we've said sex quite a lot you know so i, I do think if if you like those things in your fiction definitely give it a go <laughs> but yeah sorry sorry we haven't got more into the the nitty-gritty of what goes on they're simply not those kinds of tales to, to finish off leon um we'll do the standard thing can you recommend a book for my listeners that that you think they should read and, and tell us why. Yes, I'd be delighted to. So this book comes out next month, and it's called Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield, right. and it is also a work of queer horror. I do read other things, but I I really love this book, and I very so I'm very keen to recommend it. And it's a double narrative about a deep sea exploration that goes horribly and very sinisterly wrong. And then the wife of one of the explorers whose partner has come back really quite wrong from deep under the sea after being away for much longer than expected. And it's some really quite spectacular different types of horror existing in the same novel. Right. I tried to get Julia on the podcast um, and her publicist didn't see the email for months. So by that time, I'd, I'd filled the slot. So it, it's kind of, this, this book is kind of the one that got away. Oh, no. So now that you've recommended it, I may redouble my efforts and try and find some space in the schedule um, and, and, and get Julia on. Because, yeah, I, I, I love kind of anything to do with the sea. Anyway, it's inherently creepy. 
So yeah, I will do my best. But yeah, thanks for that recommendation. That is one I'm sure that a lot of my listeners won't have heard of, certainly in the US. So that's useful. My last question, simple but profound. What truly scares you? I think what truly scares me at the moment is sleep. During the pandemic, I have forgotten how to go to sleep. And I I don't sleep enough. I don't like sleeping because I resent it and I talk in my sleep. So I also, uh, I'm also terrified of the idea that I might spontaneously die in my sleep and not know about it. I think I've become quite fixated on the idea of knowing that I'm dying as it happens, which is, pro- is probably an experience you actually want to skip out of, but for some reason it feels important. Yeah. So I, I have a really bad habit on this show of asking people questions about what scares them and then promptly talking about myself. Um, and it must sound every week like I, I have every fear that other people have, but I also have a whole anxiety about sleep. Um, and with me, it's not about dying, it's about dreaming. I, I'm quite frightened of dreaming because when I wake up, I wake up really confused. And I, can never under, I can never determine until the morning what was real and what wasn't. So I get like night terrors, get really freaked out. Um so I share your pain. And all I can recommend is Pucker Tea Dream Time. <laughs> I know it sounds pathetic, but that has been my solution to not be able to sleep. I mean, it sounds like a healthy solution. And they have a lot of her- like herbal teas in Germany. So perhaps they do have that one. They're big, they're big on their restorative teas. Yeah. No, I do sympathize with you because that, that fear about that anxiety about sleep it can so easily become like a, a self-perpetuating thing because of you, you've got to do it. And then it's that when it gets to sort of evening, you start dreading going to bed and then you lie in bed looking at the ceiling. And I, I understand that anxiety massively. I hope you, uh, I hope you get over it. Thank you. I mean, eventually I will get tired enough to sleep for like 10 hours and that will reset me for a bit. Yeah. Well, I hope you do because um, we need more stories. And I imagine sleep would help with that. Um, Leon, listen, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I um, I really appreciate it. We're recording a few weeks in advance of the book, but it is released in the UK on the 17th of Feb. Is that correct? Yes, that is that is correct. It's the 17th. I hope that this book gets the recognition it deserves. It got a lot of buzz when it was announced, and I hope it gets an equal amount when it's released because... These are very, very unique stories that should be read. But all I've got to say is, Leon Craig, thank you for talking scared. Thank you so, so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. So having read some pre-release press about Parallel Hells, I went into it expecting a full-blown erotic marathon, all ball gags and nipple clamps. Imagine my surprise then to find a series of extremely subtle psychological stories, albeit with the occasional reference to fisting. (laughs) I think of all the things we talked about in that conversation, the two aspects that really sum up the subtlety of this book is the fact that most of these stories end rather than begin with a question, and that and also that they repeatedly turn away from the easy horror of some recognised violence or atrocity, inward to probe Leon's character's damaged souls. I'm not sure I can call all of the stories satisfying in the normal sense of that word, because they often refuse closure. In a number of them, I wasn't even entirely sure what question I was being asked. So yeah, these are not easy tales, but they are easy to read. They don't feel like hard work at all and and the literary is balanced well against the breadcrumbs of the supernatural and the overt horror that Leon drops along the way. As I said, the two stories that really stand out for me are Hags, which is just this weirdly sweet riot, that's the one with the fisting, and the other is Pretty Rooms, the one about the furniture that broke my heart. I compared it to the Foghorn by Ray Bradbury and, and just to follow up on that, The Foghorn couldn't be more different in principle. I mean, I can't think of two more different short story writers than Ray Bradbury and Leon Craig. Rather than a vignette about sentient coffee tables, The Foghorn is a story about a sea monster 
a lonely sea monster. But if you've got a heart, then the foghorn will cut it in half. And I remember reading it and feeling just so adrift afterwards. And that's how Pretty Rooms made me feel too. You can find the foghorn in most good Bradbury collections. It's one of his most famous stories. And if you haven't read Bradbury, you bloody well should. He inspired everyone. Alongside Richard Matheson, he basically created the backdrop for speculative fiction in the mid to late 20th century. And I'd, I'd recommend picking up the two-volume Ray Bradbury colon stories published by Harper Voyager. It has pretty much all of his best stuff. Yeah, it, it is a weird jump from Leon Craig to Bradbury, but we aim for irreverence on this show, don't we? And, and the weirdest connections are often the richest ones. If you've read The Foghorn, or hell, if you've read an early release of Parallel Hells, get in touch and do let me know what you think, particularly of the story Pretty Rooms. Contact details never change, except that one time that they did. Uh, you can reach me at TalkScaredPod on Twitter and Instagram, or if you're on TikTok, I've got about six very grumpy videos that look like they were delivered in a terrorist hostage situation. Frankly, I need the help. You can also email me directly at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com and as ever, I'd be thrilled to hear from you. Please, if you can, leave a review. They make me smile and they help platform the show. I've, I've had some wonderful feedback but nothing for a week or so now. So yeah, do what you can, if you can. And lastly, if you want bonus content, you can sign up for the Talking Scared Patreon. For extra chat, from most of the guests as well as a standalone episode like the recent one about strange arctic mysteries with Ali Wilkes you simply follow the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash talking scared pod and subscribe a huge thanks to some recent additions to the patreon squad Emily, Zelina and Elizabeth welcome, take a bow and thank you massively it really does make a difference now, if this episode was the introduction to kink and queer horror, the subtle, sophisticated amuse-bouche, you might say, then next week is all about sticking our head right in the trough and slurping it down greedily. The guest will be Gretchen Felker-Martin, the book will be Manhunt, it's already infamous and I'm already nervous. Trust me, you do not want to miss that episode. I haven't recorded it yet, and who knows where the fuck it's going to go. But, until then, look after your furniture, learn your safe word, and if you're 20 years old, trust me, it gets better. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.